Welcome, everyone. Did you grab your seat? Uh, very, very glad that you all have joined us uh, for worship this morning. My name is Scott, and I'm one of the pastors here. We are in a series right now called Christ and Culture, and we are saying that we're building a, a biblical foundation for some of the most uh, controversial issues in our culture. Uh, today, we're tackling two things that may not look like they go together, but I hope by the end of today, you'll see that they do which is in light of the fact that we are image bearers of God, that all people are created in God's image, that has implications for how we seek justice for the unborn, but also the poor in our midst, those people that live on the most marginalized parts of society. And so we are called to be image bearers, or we are image bearers. None of us fully reflect God's glory or his image, but every single person on planet Earth and that's ever existed has is, is an image bearer of God, and we're going to look at that today. Uh, from the unborn to the dying, from the most extraordinary to the most mundane, from the most fit to the least healthy, and from the wealthiest to the most impoverished, we all bear God's image, and that's crucial for us to see. And yet, as we wade into these very controversial issues, there's a lot of tension that we're feeling, and, and I want us to, to just recognize, I said this at the end of the first service, but um, as, we, as we wrestle with these issues, Jesus is fully grace and he is fully truth. And the scripture is, is full of grace and full of truth. But the reality is we as people tend to be inclined towards grace or truth with maybe uh, more grace and a little bit of truth or, uh, or vice versa. And so, but Jesus is fully grace and truth. And so we find that personally very challenging and, and live in that tension. And what I'm asking each of us as we begin this morning, in a sense, as we go to him in prayer, is, is to, to ask the Spirit to be with us. And, and as we enter into that tension, for you to just say, like, it's okay. I'm going, if you're not feeling a little challenged today, then I didn't do my job. Uh, and myself, more than anyone in this room, will have been challenged all week as I've wrestle with these passages and these texts and the call that God has placed in our lives to care for the image bearer around us. And so are you ready to enter the tension? All right, let's pray. Father, we ask God that you would be here with us. If you do not accompany this, then really nothing more than a lecture will have occurred. But God, we need you. We're desperate for you. We ask, Father, that you would send your spirit and that the spirit that he uh, would make movement in our heart to have greater compassion for those that you love. We ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. As we wade into these issues, um, for many people, these are not just theoretical. They're personal. As we talk about abortion, as we talk about poverty, but particularly abortion, for many women, this is, this is an issue and um, where you've been either incredibly uh, tempted, perhaps, to have an abortion, or you have. And for anyone in this room that has had an abortion, our attempt today is not to heap guilt on anyone, especially for people who have processed that, have brought that to Christ and received the forgiveness of Christ. And I want you to know, no matter who you are in Christ, that there's, there is no sin outside of the grace and the mercy and the power of Jesus Christ. When we take those things to him in belief and repentance, there's nothing, there's nothing outside the scope of his forgiveness. For many people, these things are not just theoretical, even though later we're going to be getting into a lot of the theory. It's deeply personal. And in light of that, I've invited um, my good friend and yours as well, if you're a part of this church, uh, Amanda Taves, to share part of her story with us this morning. Would you please welcome Amanda? 
Um, so part of my story um, includes this um, topic. And just to give you a little bit of context, I'll tell you a little bit about how I grew up. I grew up in a very small town in Northwest Iowa. It's very conservative. Uh, my Christian, or my parents grew up Christians. I grew up Christian. Uh, went to church twice every Sunday. Yes, that was a thing. It still is a thing. Um, we even had this uh, Girl Scout type of group called Calvinettes, like named after John Calvin because we love John Calvin, you know? So uh, maybe we could do like Kellerettes here or something, <laughs> you know? just channel it. Um, so that's just to give you a kind of a context of what the environment was that I grew up in. So we were definitely taught the rules. We knew what was right and what was wrong. Um, and when I was in high school, I strayed from that, uh, mostly um, in the areas of just drinking. And um, when I was 17, I found myself pregnant. And when you've grown up in that kind of environment and you find yourself pregnant after just one time of making a bad decision, you just want to run and hide. And um, this, the father was not someone that I was in a relationship with, not someone I wanted to continue to be in relationship with. And the first thing that came to my mind was I need to hide and get rid of this problem. And... Um, I, so what I did was I called Planned Parenthood, and I was 17 at the time, and I made an appointment for an abortion the day after my 18th birthday. And, you know, I, you just never know what you're going to do until you're in a situation. And I would never have dreamed that I was capable of making that phone call, but I did. And by God's grace... Over the course of the next several days, I felt compelled to tell one of my friends at school um, that I was pregnant and that I had made that phone call. And the next day, uh, that friend and another friend kidnapped me before school and took me to a Christian adoption agency, sat me down and explained, like, this is what you're doing. This is the decision that you're making, and this is what that means. And I'm like, well, well goodness, of course. Like, yes, I believe all of this. And I, you know, from that point on, I made an adoption plan instead of an abortion plan. But it's just, it's just striking how when you're in the dark, like Tyson was saying, you run and hide from the Garden of Eden. That is our tendency is to run and hide. We do not want to be exposed. The guilt, the shame, the, one of the hardest things I've ever done is to sit down in front of my parents and tell him I was pregnant. And I didn't want that. And that's why I made that phone call. And so the story, my story is different than some other people's stories. And that doesn't make it better or worse. Um, but it was still hard. I went to my senior prom five months pregnant. That looks really good in a prom dress. <laughs> Um, thankfully, graduation gowns are not form-fitting, um, but, um, you know, my daughter is now the age I was when I had her. She's 18, and she's beautiful, and she is so smart, and she has a wonderful family that loves her, and I just think God's grace is so good, and 
behind every statistic is a person and a story. And I just think, how can we not have compassion for those people? And so I hope that um, my story is one that encourages you to love other people who are in hard situations because you don't know what their life is like. And even if they know the right thing to do, that doesn't mean they have the courage to do it alone. And so um, just be encouraged. Like, God's grace is good enough for all of this. And um, like Scott will surely say, like, all our sin is covered by the grace and blood of Christ. And I just um, hope that whatever I have said today helps kind of encourage you in that. So thank you. Uh, Amanda's one of our good friends, of course, me and Becky, but also our whole staff. And just as we began to, to process this sermon and to be thinking about it, I just thought how powerful it would be for Amanda to share her story. There are many of us uh, others that could share similar stories, I'm sure. And again, our intent is to not, is to not bring guilt and shame, uh, but instead to support the lives that, that God has placed in our sphere and to see that God has created us in his image. And so we go today, and we're going to look at these things. The foundation. All people are image bearers. And then we're going to look at the impact of what that means regarding the unborn, but then also what that means regarding uh, the poor in our midst. The first two chapters of Genesis, as we've been saying throughout this series, serve as a foundation, pillars for us to see really how we are related to God how we're related to one another as neighbors and as uh, brothers and sisters, and also how we are related to ourselves, like how to understand ourselves. And as God creates in Genesis chapters one through two, what you see is he creates land and he creates weather and plants and animals and fish, sun and moon, and he steps back as he does and he declares it good. And in that declaration of declaring it good, we see that our faith, the Christian faith, is, is not against the material world at all, that God has created it and created all things good. But on the last day of creation, you see in Genesis, um, God steps back after having created Adam and Eve, and he declares the creation of humanity very good, a superlative good. And we see in Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Luke 10, a lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And this is one of the most famous passages in the, in the Gospels, and uh, it's called the Good Samaritan. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if you've been around church at all, or if you've been uh, around you know, Christianity at all, most likely you've heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this lawyer comes trying to argue with Jesus, says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered him with a story about a Samaritan man, someone called the Good Samaritan. And when we hear words like Israel and, and Samaria, like that doesn't mean much to us. But I want you to think of Israel today and Palestine, because that's kind of how this was. Israel, uh, of course, the, the Jewish people, one of their primary enemies or the people that they were most uh, against were these Samaritan people that were similar to them in faith at some level, but also a different race. And there was a lot of animosity between the two. 
And so Jesus is, this lawyer is asking, who is the good Samaritan? And Jesus answers by telling the story that there's this man uh, who has been beaten and robbed and left for dead. But who stops to help this man as he's suffering on the side of the road? It's not the pastor, the priest. It's not uh, the other faithful people of Israel. Instead, it is this man, this good Samaritan, the enemy of Israel that stops and helps and binds his wounds, helps care for him. And Jesus turns and basically implies, like, even your enemy is your neighbor. Why would Jesus teach this? Like, what was at the core of this teaching behind it? And what is at the core of it is this, is in the biblical story is this rootedness and this view that all people are created in the image of God. We are all image bearers. Every race, tongue, tribe, ethnicity, we are all image bearers of God. And yet, we seek to live our lives in light of the biblical story. But the reality is, we are all listening to other stories that are shaping us and creating us in who we are. And in the, in the competition of these stories, oftentimes what happens is people are not valued nearly as much as they should be. In these, comp- uh, these competing stories in, in which are forming us and shaping us, a lot of times what happens is, yeah, people matter, but some people matter more than other people, right? That some people seem to be more image bearers than others. And the narrative of individualism is one of the most powerful shaping forces in the, in the West and certainly in America, this idea of individualism that was born out of the Enlightenment largely. It is shaping us, whether you are on the left side of politics and more progressive, or whether you're on the right side and more conservative, we have all been shaped by this story of individualism. There's a book I want to recommend to you called Becoming Whole by Brian Fickert and Kelly Capick, and they are both professors at Covenant College, uh, where my son is headed to just this week. He is going to be a freshman there, so pray for us as we say goodbye to him. But these two professors, they work in the Chalmers Center. This is Economic Development uh, Center there at, at Covenant College. And they've written another book called When Helping Hurts and shows that as we seek to help poor people, obviously sometimes uh, the solutions are actually very complex and we can end up hurting people more than helping in our attempts to simply help. But they've written this other book about poverty and how the, the body of Christ is called to help. And it's called Becoming Whole. And in that book, they write this. Individualism has blessed the world with institutions that uphold human dignity, freedom, and justice for all. Not everything about individualism is wrong, but at its core, individualism reflects a fundamentally unbiblical understanding of human beings and human flourishing. And when individualism is combined with Western civilization's materialistic worldview, the result is a highly self-centered consumeristic society. This, this notion that we are autonomous, that we live according to self-law, that we just create the rules, we get to do what we want, is not God's design. We were created in the image of a God who did not exist as an individual. He's one God, but exists how? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And so for eternity, God, and that's, talk about the ultimate tension and mystery, God as one, and yet it is three people. And as three people, God in his fullness and out of relationship and community, God speaks all things into existence, not as an individual, but out of this beautiful union between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the life 
that God invites his people into is not one of privatized individualism where I am autonomous and a rule and a law unto myself. The truth is, these competing stories that we look to have a tendency, again, to say that some people matter and others don't. Another book I would recommend to you is by Pastor Scott Sauls. It's called Jesus Outside the Lines, and he writes this. One of modern society's most heated, polarizing conversations centers on the value of human life. Everyone, of course, will say that they believe life is sacred, but not everyone seems to treat all of life as equally sacred. And let's just be honest, as we live in this tension, that's true of all of us. That's true of all of us as individuals. It's true of the political parties that you may align yourself with. It's, it's through the theories that we adhere to. Like We are, as a people, individually and corporately, there's a tendency to value some people more than others. And today, I hope we feel the tension and the pull to understand that God is calling us to love our neighbors ourselves. And our neighbor is not just people that look like us or or have the same race as us or background or socioeconomic background. Jesus' whole point in in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is to show us that whoever is near us and in need is our neighbor. And even those people that are not in need, all everyone around us who's in close proximity and 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 in this global world that we live in now, that that basically means everyone in some sense. People who are near, people who are in need, and I'm not just talking about the people next door to you, like literally next door to your right and your left. The people in your spheres of influence and your life especially, these are our neighbors. And so we have this tendency, though, uh, to treat some life as sacred and others are denied that. And today I want us to feel the weight of the fact that we're called to understand all people as image bearers. And the first we're going to tackle is image bearing and the unborn. We believe that people are created in the image of God and that life begins at conception. And you can argue about, well, maybe life begins after that, but if it doesn't begin at conception, then where else does it begin? At conception is when life begins, and the result, if there isn't uh, a miscarriage, is the result is, is a human being. And however, the, today, though, the story of our culture does not have God at the center of it. We are seeking, not because we're better, but by God's grace, have come to know Christ as Lord, as King, and to trust his word. And in so doing, we're looking to his word to define what is true for us. But in our culture today, God is no longer at the center of our story, but instead we are at the center of the story. And what we're left with is this concept of the strong conquering the weak and natural selection. And the the, the existence that we have is here largely just due to random chance and time. And we're left with this theory that says, therefore, natural selection and the weak should overpower the the poor and and the, or excuse me, the strong overpower the weak and the poor. And really, at the end of the day, there's nothing anyone can do about it. That's just the way it is. And without God at the center... Life becomes dispensable. Scott Sauls in the same book, Jesus Outside the Line, says this. When we reduce a human being's right to live all the way down to a cost-benefit analysis and decide to discard the lives that seem to cost more than they contribute, what will be next? And what we're seeing is with people with Down syndromes, then they become dispensable. People like people with Down syndrome are increasingly being considered people who are dispensable. 
Gabe Lyons is a father of a young man who has Down syndrome, and he wrote this in the Huffington Post a few years ago. Eleven years ago this week, Rebecca and I celebrated the birth of our firstborn son, and despite his Down syndrome diagnosis, we were overjoyed to welcome this new life into our family. But not everyone welcomes children like Cade. It's no secret. People with Down syndrome have been targeted for extinction. In November, the New York Post heralded the end of Down syndrome and profiled a new safer test for prenatal detection. And before this test was available, roughly 92% of Down syndrome diagnoses and many times false diagnoses resulted in the mothers choosing to terminate their pregnancies. But now with these new tests, some experts, because it's so exact in, in determining which child has Down syndrome, some experts are foretelling the end of Down syndrome. Why the rush to rid the world of people like Cade, he asked. Certainly, it isn't because his disability physically threatens anyone. Rather, Down syndrome children pose a different kind of threat to society. The in-your-face reminder that our aspirations for perfection are flawed. People like Cade disrupt the normal. Whether it's his insistence that everyone he says hello to on the busy streets of Manhattan respond in kind, or his unfiltered ability to hug a lonely, wheelchair-bound, homeless man without hesitation, people like Cade bring a new dimension to what normal ought to be. And while being empathetic for the difficult situations that people and women in particular find themselves, like Amanda's story, as a society, we have to ask ourselves about who we are when we fight for the right to abort well after a baby is viable outside the womb. Late-term abortion and partial birth abortion should serve as a mirror forcing us to ask how far are we let, will we let the story of radical individualism shape us and at what cost. And people say, perhaps you've said this, it's my body. It's, it's my right, what I do with my body, but at what point does the body of the other also matter? And these are the conversations we have to begin to ask ourselves as a society and as the church. At what point will these reflections, these, these holding up a mirror to ourselves, at what point will we say, this is enough? We must walk with women in difficult situations, but we must also protect the dignity and the sacredness of human life and to embrace the belief that life begins at conception. Because we are born and created beautifully, wonderfully in the image of God. And King David said so beautifully in the Psalms that I was knit together in my mother's womb. Image bearing and the unborn. And I want us to see now the tension of image bearing and the poor. Everyone, to quote again, of course will say that they believe that life is sacred, but not everyone seems to treat all of humanity with equal sacredness. There are Christians, to switch gears here for a second, who are Republicans, and some Democrats think that's an impossibility. And there are Christians who are Democrats, and there are some Republicans who think that is an impossibility. Democrats accuse Republicans of only caring about the unborn and no other vulnerable people. Republicans accuse Democrats as being pro-death because of the party they support. Here's another quote from Scott Sauls. Both sides believe without a doubt that Jesus is on their side. So these are, these are people who are following Christ who have these party affiliations. 
Both sides believe that without a doubt that Jesus is on their side and they're upholding the sanctity of life. And both sides believing they possess the moral high ground launch verbal and digital grenades at one another for having such a low regard for human dignity. Could it be that both sides are prone to privilege one type of human being while dismissing another type of human being? And throughout the entire Bible, though, what we see is this consistent story in Old and New Testament, God calling us to care for the people that are most vulnerable in society. In Micah 6.8, the Old Testament, many of you have this view that the Old Testament is filled only with law and that God was not a gracious God in the Old Testament. And somewhere between Jesus and the Old Testament, he changed his mind, but that is not true. God has always been full of grace and full of truth. In Micah 6.8, beautifully, he says this, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And I want to read to you from another great book that I'm going to commend to you called Generous Justice by Tim Keller. We'll start that Kellerite club pretty soon, according to Amanda. Micah 6.8 is a summary of how God wants us to live. To walk humbly with God is to know him intimately and to be attentive to what he desires and loves. And what does that consist of? The text says in Micah 6, 8, to do justice and love mercy, which at first glance may seem like two different things, but it's not. The term for mercy in the Hebrew is hesed, and it means God's unconditional grace and compassion. And throughout the Old Testament, as you're reading it, you will hear this phrase, God's steadfast love, his steadfast love for Israel, his steadfast love, and that is the word hesed. It's God's steadfast covenantal commitment to his people that is based on his grace and his mercy and his kindness. The word for justice, the Hebrew term mishpat, in Micah 6.8, mishpat puts the emphasis on the action and hesed puts it on the attitude or the motive behind our action. To walk with God, we must do justice and we must love mercy. And the word mishpat in its various forms occurred more than 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably. So Leviticus 24 warns Israel to have the same rule of law or mishpah for the foreigner as the native. Mishpah means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of their race or their social status. Anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty, but mishpah means more than just the punishment of wrongdoing. It also means to give people their rights. And in the Old Testament, God was very concerned that people living on the margins of society, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, because they did not have enough relationships around them in terms of strength to be, to be protected from injustice, that God's people should be in display in such a way that they would rise up. They would be the ones to care for those people that would be most vulnerable to attack or injustice. Deuteronomy 10 says this, he executes justice for who? Church, the fatherless, the orphan. And who else? And the widow. People, you know, we live in a city where a huge need for adoption. 
And while we don't have orphanages any longer, we have the foster care system. And our foster care system in Arizona is inundated with children in need. And, and we don't have, uh, we, ha- we have widows, of course, today, and, and maybe they're not in the same circumstance that they may have been back in that culture when they had very little uh, economic rights, or, and if they lost their husband, they, they would be much more vulnerable than a widow might be today in some level. But we have people in nursing homes living on the margins of society without family or friend to look after. He executes justice for the fatherless, the widow, and he loves the sojourner. That's a foreigner that's in your land sojourning, passing through, traveling, or that might be a word we might use for immigrant. Giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were once a sojourner in the land of Egypt. And I could spend literally the rest of the day taking you to passages in, in the Gospels where Jesus has concern for the poor. When Jesus first preaches and goes in the synagogue, right, he goes to Isaiah and declares good news for the poor. We have a tendency to, to make that metaphor and say, well, that's poor in spirit because there is one time when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit and said literally the poor. But every other time he says, blessed are the poor. There are so many passages we could go to today, but today I will go to Matthew 25. When Jesus said this to his disciples in the form of a parable, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me and I was in prison and you came to me. And and in this parable, Jesus said, and the people went to the king and said, but oh, king, we never went to the prison and visited you. We've never brought you a a cup of cold water. We never fed you. When were you in prison and when were you in the hospital? And he said, whenever you did it unto whom? Church, the least of these, you've done it unto me. Christ as king is saying, when you have done these gifts of mercy provided for the poor, you are doing it unto me, the least of me. And the king will answer him, truly I say to you, as you did it, To one of these least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I live in South Tempe. It's one of the wealthiest parts of the whole valley, believe it or not. And I'm not the wealthiest guy in my neighborhood by any stretch. But I'm wealthy by any slice. When you back it up and start looking at the economy of the whole world and even in the United States, like many of us are wealthy. When you look at, back it up to the whole world, probably all of us are wealthy. And so I count myself as extremely wealthy. And I'm a hard worker. <laughs> I really am. And I bet you are too. And I've been an extremely hard worker since my freshman year in college. And prior to that, I was not. <laughs> I just wasn't. I coasted. I worked hard at work. I worked for a pharmacy and I worked hard there. But at home... Lazy. Do you, do you remember what that was like? <laughs> and I could rip on my boys right now. Like, yeah, I mean, work, when they're working for the man and they have jobs, when they're out working for the job, like it's, they work hard. When I was that age, I would work incredibly and hard for my employer and so forth. But at school and at home, I coasted and did very, very little. I was an okay student, average to a little bit above average, but I only would open a book like the night before the test and not for very long. And so when I got to college, my dad, who was a professor at the college that I went to at Purdue University, took me to the, uh, not the Red Rock, he took me to uh, Red Lobster, 
<laughs> the crimson crustacean. And I'm, I'm at Red Lobster with him. I'll never forget it. It may be the last time I've gone to a Red Lobster. And I'm there with my dad. And he says to me, within this first year of college, you will fail out of Purdue University. And there was no ha, ha, ha. <laughs> like there, was, there was no but. It was just a prophecy. You will fail out of Purdue. And I said, well, why are we having this conversation? And why, why? And I got, I have a B average and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, your school is below average and you've not worked hard. You're now in a serious academic. If you don't begin to work, you're going to fail out. And I don't know why it only took that one conversation for this, you know, the switch to flip for me, but it did. And I began to work really, really hard in my schoolwork. And I had not up to that point. I worked really, really hard in graduate school. I work really, really hard now. But my dad grew up very, very poor, really, really hard, very, very poor, <laughs> a lot of superlatives. He grew up extremely poor in rural Indiana. He was the first person to ever go to college in his whole family. My stepdad was the same way. And so I've worked really hard, but the reality is what I have in life, I am standing on the backs of other people. When I was very young, I knew that college was in my future. It wasn't even a question. I would go to college and, unless I somehow really messed it up because my dad was already a professor there, I would have free entrance into Purdue. Things were set up for me. And when I had the chance, I worked hard. And I've continued to work. And my hard work is not insignificant, and neither is yours. But the success and the wealth that I have aren't only because of what I have achieved. I am standing on the backs of a lot of opportunities that by God's grace and the, and the family and the relationships that I have put me there. And you understand that, right? That the things that we have are often built around the relationships, family, friends, and so forth. We just prayed over my son who's leaving for college. We met in my office and several men from the church prayed over him. And one of the prayers was, may he always know that he has a family in Arizona that will never leave him or forsake him. And that's true. He has this relational network. He has a safety net that many people don't have. He not only has me and Becky and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins, he has this hundreds of people at this church that love him, would do anything for him. And that is the difference for many people. We stand on the back of grace and the story of my success has a lot of nuances, but so does other people's struggles. You with me? My success, I stand on the back of other people, and there's a lot of nuance to my story of why I have what I have, and that's true of you too if you've got a lot. But you know what? That's also true of where a lot of people have wound up in difficult places in life. There's a lot of nuance in the story. And people can use that as an excuse. And maybe you're sick and tired of people complaining about privilege, but it's important to acknowledge that the cause of both wealth and poverty are far more complex than some people work hard and others are just lazy. It just is far more complex than that. In Becoming Whole, Feichert and Capic say this, the causes of poverty are extremely complex and the solutions are usually unclear. How's that for frustration? But that's the truth. 
The causes are complex, and, and the way out is not unclear, and there isn't just an easy solution. So we do acts of mercy. We wonder, what should we do? We pack bags in our cars at New Valley to be ready to hand people water, but we know we're just meeting a near need, right? We're keeping people from running out of water and, and being dehydrated and being sick, but we're not solving the problem that they find themselves in. It's just meeting a, a mere need, not solving Tim Keller writes, rich people can certainly be treated unjustly, but as philosopher Nicholas Walterstorff has written, and he's a Christian philosopher, the fact that not only that not only are poor people disproportionately vulnerable to injustice, but usually disproportionately actual victims of injustice. Injustice is not equally distributed. The gospel should lead us to believe and understand that we are created in the image of God, and that's our foundation. And that we're therefore called to love our neighbor as ourself and, and to meet the needs of the vulnerable, and that includes the unborn, and it also includes the poor. But we must continually, in our hearts, church, and, and as individuals and corporately, be fueled by the gospel. Some Christians worry that when we take up the cause of the vulnerable, that social justice will replace the gospel, preaching that ultimately the kingdom is only meeting physical needs. And that concern is not unfounded. We've seen that happen in many churches, many denominations, where social justice and meeting the needs of the impoverished becomes such the focus that they, they quit beginning to preach the Bible as the Bible and the gospel, the need for people to come to Christ as Lord, to receive his forgiveness, to have your life changed. But friends, we can never leave the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is the, is the power for salvation. It is the, it is the power for selfish hearts like me to actually begin to care. Without the gospel, I think I would only believe the Western story that I'm just an individual and that's all I need. But it's the gospel that has birthed in me to have a care and a concern for others. And I want to go to two places just to preach the gospel to us and to remember that it is the gospel that should drive us for all of our concern and care for the vulnerable. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. There, no one has been more wealthy in the world. No human has been more wealthy than Jesus. Not while on planet Earth. He was, he was very middle class or poor. He was a carpenter. But he left his father's throne above, as the great Wesleyan hymn says. He left riches beyond imagine. He is the, a member of the triune God who's comes to earth, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, becoming a servant, even unto death for us, right? And in his dying, he took our sin upon himself, and he imparted his righteousness to us. And so he who was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so poor that he died on a cross, naked and ashamed and exposed to the whole world. Why? So that you might become rich. And the free offer of the gospel is not only that you have your sins forgiven, but you have the hope of being part of the kingdom of God when it's ushered in, when Jesus comes in his fullness and finality of it all, and he brings in the new heavens and the new earth, and you will be among that kingdom, fully restored the way meant, everything was meant to be. 
the next passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Only one person was without sin, that's Jesus Christ. And, and he became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who was rich became poor so that you could inherit the eternal life. He who was righteous took on unrighteousness that we may be made righteous. And when we see ourselves as righteous and earning God's favor by our good deeds, there's no power to care for people outside of us that are impoverished. I mean, it's not that there's no, no power, but let's face it, the legalist struggles to have compassion. But the beggar who's found bread tends to have mercy. The Pharisees lack compassion because they, they didn't care about the other because they were righteous in and of themselves. The prostitute that found forgiveness at Jesus' feet was forgiven much because she loved much. Friend, you can't forget who you are. You're not righteous. If you're right with God, it's not because you're good. It's because God is gracious. If you're right with God, you're not right with God because you're good. You're right with God because God is gracious and he sent his love and his mercy and his kindness and has given you the gift of his righteousness. That's it. And when you're a beggar who deserves to be cast out but instead has been brought in as a son and daughter, how else can we not return in mercy and kindness and love those who are outside? When you've seen the impoverishment of your own soul and realized how poor you were in spirit, and without God and Christ, you would have no hope or mercy. But in, in light of that, how much more then, in light of how much we've been given in Christ, should we care for those who are impoverished in this life? When I see that I'm without hope, except in God's sovereign mercy, I can't help but love those who are poor in this life. In Becoming Whole Again, Feichert and Capic, he says this, they say this, Americans are losing trust in one another. This is so true. And I don't want you to do this because it's so discouraging, but if, if you really want to see it, how it's playing out, even in the church, get on some Facebook groups where it's just Christians and watch them battle it out. Americans are losing trust in one another, even Christians. Not only do group A and group B have honest disagreement about best policy, they no longer accept the other as people of goodwill. Some of us, friends, are more progressive, and some of you are more conservative. That's just a fact. And we're probably not going to agree with one another on our policy. If we were to sit everyone down at a table and say, let's argue this all out about how do we solve the immigration crisis? How do we solve uh, poverty in America? We're probably not going to all agree on policy. But the one thing I would hope in our church, but in the church, is that followers of Jesus would adhere to the idea that God has created humanity uniquely in his image. And that has profound implications by how we ought to treat our neighbor. And that includes the unborn and the poor among us, and especially the most vulnerable. To conservatives, I want to speak to you for a minute. It is good to champion the rights of the unborn and do not grow weary in doing so. But also let the gospel enlarge your compassion for the poor for the orphan, for the widow, for the immigrant, and for the other neighbors in your midst. Friends, the cause of poverty is far more complex than just laziness, and the solutions aren't nearly as simple as just free markets. 
and to those on the left who love Jesus. You're right to champion the cause of the poor, and this is honoring to Christ. Do not grow weary in this. Do not grow weary. But also, do not ignore the dignity and sacredness of human life in the womb. And the right of the woman or women's rights cannot outweigh the rights of a vulnerable child who is living in an incredibly vulnerable place in America. The causes of poverty are complex and the solutions aren't always simple as more government. We have to live in this tension. And we're called to love one another above all, no matter what our policy ideas are or theory on politics. We are called to love one another. John 17, Jesus prays that his children would be one. Jesus talked about unity so much. The apostle, St. Paul, spoke so often about warning about divisions and divisiveness. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. There will be human divisions. There are Cowboys fans, and then there are people who love God. I mean, right? I mean, just, no. So sorry. We needed to lighten it up a little. There are human divisions. But here's the, the thing that I see in studying this this week that I, that I was inspired by was this. If God's people would put politics aside and say, Jesus' kingdom is primary and foremost, regardless of my policy concepts, and secondarily, that I will pursue the rights of my neighbor passionately, and I will pursue the fact that all people are created in the image of God, whether I'm coming from the left or the right. We should be meeting towards each other as we're going to pursue and meet the needs of others around us. Amen? That should unify us, that Christ is king, his kingdom is primary, and he is our identity. And finally, Peter says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may you clothe us in humility towards one another. May we listen to one another. May we love one another. And may we pursue what is just and what is right for people who are vulnerable, for people who are vulnerable to violence and death and poverty, and disease. Lord, may this church and others who love you be open to your spirit moving us to provide relationship and care and concern, Father. And we enter the tension realizing that the, the problems that get people into these situations are complex and the solutions are also. But beyond all that, Lord, you love your creation, you've set your love on us and you've called us to serve our neighbor and to love them as much as we love ourselves. We pray this in your name, amen.